Friday Mai, and welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason Heal, and I'm the Communications Manager at Maxim Institute. I'm pleased to present this recording of our recent Maxim Institute conversation evening, featuring research fellow Alex Pink and senior researcher Marcus Roberts in conversation around our latest paper release, COVID and Our Constitution, How a Pandemic Affected Our Body Politic and Culture. The paper reviewed New Zealand's constitutional response to COVID-19 and asked questions like, what has happened in the courts? How has the fabric of our society changed? How might we better be prepared for the next crisis? This discussion offered some helpful, hopeful answers to these and other questions. The event was held live at the Pocket Bar on the 22nd of June. It was a phenomenal evening full of delightful dialogue, conversation and lively interaction. It was amazing to gather and to talk about such vital issues. We offer this recording to you in the hopes that it will be beneficial now and in the future. We want to note that given this was recorded live, the sound quality is not what we would have hoped to present to you. We ask that you look past the quality of the recording to the quality of the conversation and the outstanding information, assessment, and reflection that Marcus and Alex have in dialogue with our executive director, Tim Wilson. And so, let us get right into the podcast as Tim asks Alex and Marcus to explain why constitutions matter. Alex, why does all of what we've been discussing, why, does constitutional, why do constitutional issues matter so much? So to answer that, I'm, I'm going to reach back into my uh, undergraduate university days, which um, is a fair while ago now. But um, when I was at law school, I did a paper called Administrative Law, which should be the boringest paper um, that it's possible to do based, based on the title. But it was actually the best thing I, the best paper I ever took. And uh, the guy who took it, Professor Mike Taggart, was an absolute legend. But he made the paper just absolutely fascinating because he said very early on, law is about power. Um, it's about who has power, how it's structured, how it can be used. And I think that's that's a really key kind of fact to bear in mind when you're thinking about constitutional issues. Uh, often people just kind of think constitution, that sounds important. Or they might think constitution, that sounds boring. Um, but when we're talking about constitutions, we're talking about public power, the power of the state. So everything that kind of relates to that public power um, from the laws, the processes, the machinery, and even the culture is constitutional. And that reaches into everybody's life that's that's why i find it fascinating and that's why i think it's really important and presumably that would also be how it would be affected by the pandemic experience that we've been through and uh, in some ways going through um marcus in terms of the the constitution being a chewy way of saying power relationships mm. um what can you add to that well i the, the problem a lot of people have with the word constitution is that we think of it in the american sense that you have a constitution which is a written document where all well not even true in the states but where the the power is divided up uh, amongst the different bodies we don't have that in new zealand we don't have a document called the constitution and so you, you sometimes hear people say we don't have a constitution in new zealand which is just not true we have a constitution that's harder to find um because it's contained in all sorts of different areas uh but it's uh, uh partly written and partly unwritten. Um, it's partly laws, but it's also, as Alex mentioned, a whole lot of uh, things called conventions, which are, un uh, well, sometimes they're written down, but they're not laws. They are practices that have evolved over time. And in order to have force, they require people to um, adhere to them. 
the people in the, in the office holders and the institutions to adhere to those conventions. But if they don't, there's no legal recourse. And so the underlying culture that our constitution is important, that the way in which the power in New Zealand is exercised and divided up is important, um, and, and that recognition by, by all of us, that it's something that affects us all and also we need to, to uh, keep a very close watch on. I think that's, that's an important thing to remember as well. Yeah, I th- the reflection I, I, I've had is that um, if, if the people uh, in Parliament aren't observing the rules, then that filters through down to the streets of our towns and cities, that there's no leadership there. And, and, and so what will happen? There will be an unravelling of sorts. I don't want to get to that um, that aspect just yet. I want to ask about Alex about safeguards and perhaps what were some of the things that were done well during mm. that pandemic. Yeah, and maybe I'll just step back and say that I think safeguards matter in a constitutional sense because if you think about that public power, the state can tax us. Um, it has police. It has an army, um, and we know that power potentially can corrupt people. So it's really important to have safeguards around power. That's not a, it's not casting an aspersion on anybody. That's just a recognition of human nature, and that's how constitutions are set up uh, around the world. So constitutional safeguards kind of protect us from public power getting out of uh, out of control, and we have a number of them built into our system. Um, for example, uh, one of the reasons why we have a select committee process is to ensure that there are kind of checks, scrutiny, um, and also democratic deliberation and participation in terms of how laws are made. When I talk about select committee, I mean a process where a group of MPs considering a law um, will uh, will delve into what that law uh, is going to be, or proposed law, and members of the public can submit to them. They can have their say. We can have our say on the laws that Parliament's proposing to make on our behalf. Now, one of the kind of key things that happened early on in terms of our constitutional response to COVID Um, was we passed the COVID Public Health Response Act. So since May 2020, that's been the main piece of legislation uh, in this area. Um, But that was passed under what's called urgency, which basically means some of the parts of the ordinary lawmaking process get shortened or skipped, including the select committee stage. Um, And and that was controversial. There were people who at the time said, "That's, that's wrong, that shouldn't be done, you don't need to do that. The government said, we do need to do that. Accepting, accepting the government's case, I think what was really good about that was they then said, nevertheless, we will send this piece of legislation, this really significant law, to select committee after it's been passed so it can be reviewed. And so a select committee actually mounted an inquiry into that legislation and sought input from the public. So I think that was actually a key way that, or a key example of a way that our system adapted um, in, in an extraordinary time. Uh, to, to respond to the fact that we, we weren't doing things the way that we normally did, but we still recognised there were important safeguards that had to be put in place. There were still processes that needed to be respected because they protect us all. And just to get to that, is retrospective review, is that uh, as efficacious as... No, okay, no. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not as good. The question is, is it, was it the best that could be done at the time? And like I say, it was, that was, there were different, different opinions about that. That was controversial. Um, but I think, nevertheless, you know, the government could have just passed it under urgency and said, "Okay, we're done. You know, we we can do this. Um, what are you moaning about?" Uh, but but they didn't. They said, "We're going to send this to select committee, and you can have your say." And I think that's worth noting and saying that's that's a positive example. That's the kind of thing we want to see more of. And Marcus uh, Alex in his paper also notes the COVID response uh, committee that was 
convened uh, by um, uh, by the head by, by the leader of the opposition mm. at the time. Mm. That strike you as a as another thing that was done well? Yes, I mean I think it was something that was um, put forward. That didn't have to be put in place by the government. That it was um, uh, another check that was designed for these, as Alex says, these extraordinary times. The one thing I would say about that that committee in itself was was put in place because Parliament, which is where uh, the adversarial politics plays out, where the government can be held to account, was shut down for for the for the at least the start of the pandemic. And so, it's interesting to look back and say that that we, that's why we needed to go to this this uh, select committee that was held on Zoom and a lot of people uh, watched it online because our premier institution, um, and indeed, in many respects, our su- uh, supreme institution, Parliament, uh, where laws are passed, was, was closed down. And it's interesting to look back and, and think about how that happened with not much um, discussion or concern at the time. And we were all very, uh, there was a lot of worry and fear at the time around COVID. But I wonder if that suggests that if we were actually concerned about our constitution, concerned about having these checks and balances, concerned about the importance of institutions. And again, Parliament doesn't get much more important than that in our constitutional system. We could have found ways to keep it going without shutting it down. Or at least it's interesting looking back that no one really complained or thought that there was another way of doing that. Um, so yeah, there were safeguards, um, but sometimes those safeguards because the the institutional safeguard had been closed down for the pandemic. Mm. One of the arguments, and you highlight this in your paper, Alex, that was made very, very often at the time was that this was an unprecedented situation. This was a national emergency that we had never seen before. And you have some commentary on that in your paper. Mm. Um, what's your assessment? I did, Certainly you were, you were aware of those arguments, um, and they were they were made as as someone who heard them myself. I felt a growing sense of impatience with the reusing of that word. Um, what's your response to that? And also, is that is that in some way part of the cause of some of the some of the ills that we're we're thinking we're thinking to diagnose tonight? I think it is. I think it is tied up in um, something quite deep that underlies a lot of things, which is which is past. Partly that we we don't have much of a uh, long-term historical memory. So, one of the most overused statements about the COVID pandemic was that it was unprecedented. Um, I think that's wrong. Uh, I think it was extraordinary, but not unprecedented. Um, and just so that you know, I'm not some guy out on a limb uh, by himself saying that. Um, I'll give you a couple of couple of examples, uh, better authorities than me. But the Waitangi Tribunal mounted an inquiry into uh, into COVID. Uh, the government's COVID response. And one of the things they said is, you know, the reason that Māori, for example, uh, tolerated things, for example, like the suspension of tangihanga during lockdown was because they had memories of the Spanish flu and and the effect that that had had on Māori communities. Um, the High Court in an early case uh, said that the situation that we were facing was not wholly unprecedented and pointed to cases where similar lockdown powers had been used uh, in the past. And I think... This this might sort of sound a little bit like quibbling, but I think there's actually something really serious going on here because if you say that a situation is unprecedented, it tends to um, permit or even demand an unprecedented response. And when you start going down that track, you very easily start disregarding all the ordinary uh, safeguards, all the ordinary institutions, 
and you say, well, this, this is unprecedented. It doesn't matter what we would normally do. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. We have to do something different now. And you can end up, um, you can end up quite quickly disregarding things that have actually been put there for our own, uh, for our good, uh, and and for our safety. So I think um, it's not just a question of you know, what's the right word to use here, unprecedented or extraordinary. I think it has real practical, uh, real practical implications, including thinking ahead to um, what what's the next thing that's going to come, because there will be a next thing. That that is what this teaches us. There is always a next thing. There's always another emergency. There's always another crisis. How are we going to be better prepared for that? I think that's hopefully one of the big things we can take out of this. I wonder, Marcus, that uh, that absence of historical memory in 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 that unprecedented mode, precedented mode. Um, it's Alex points out in the paper that it also seems to cohere with a, a lack of preparation, um, or at least a discarding of the preparations that were in place at the time, because this is unprecedented. Yes, yeah, that's right. So Alex um, dug up a, a, a 2006 Act, I think it was, where they the, the government um, passed or this law was passed, which gave uh, the power mm-hmm. to create orders uh, in advance of an emergency happening, a health emergency happening like this. Um, and when it was reviewed uh, a couple of years into the pandemic by the courts, it realised that prior to the pandemic, no prospective medical orders had been passed whatsoever. So it was about 15 years from the enactment of this legislation to uh, COVID uh, striking these shores, and there had been none of these preparatory orders made under the Act. Uh, Instead, the government was making uh, immediate orders, uh, which did not have uh, the same amount of scrutiny or debate uh, or consideration that they uh, would have had had we been doing it on a longer time frame without the urgency of a a pandemic. now, there's a couple of things I suppose you can say about that. How easy is it to make orders that will actually, for an event that hasn't occurred yet, um, how will they stand up in the actual circumstances that you haven't foreseen? Um, and also, I, getting back to the culture, were we in a place as a nation, were we in a mental space to go to these uh, potentially judiciously made, considered health orders, or would we be prepared to say, as in other countries, these health orders are um, uh, useless for this unprecedented time, let's throw them out and uh, let's go with the um, lockdown or or, or whatever the the alternative was, which seemed to have happened in a couple of other countries like the US, where they had health orders and then um, got rid of them. Mm. And I think just just quickly... um, You want to know the detail on on this uh, um, prospective modification orders and immediate modification orders under the Epidemic Preparedness Act by the paper, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I mean it was it was actually you know the immediate modification orders were even even worse than not just being not considered because they conferred what's called a Henry VIII power. Um, so Henry VIII, <clears throat> obviously sort of known for being uh, rotund and having lots of wives, but um, the, there are these. Uh, Basically, it's about the ability or, or the attempt to bypass Parliament and make laws by executive decree, um, and immediate modification orders confer that kind of power. So you really want to be using them as little as possible, and yet we ended up relying on them because we didn't have kind of this proactive this proactive stance. And I think, you know, two two kind of things here. We're, we're talking about an act that was passed in two thousand and six. We've had governments of various political stripes. Um, since that time. So that tells you this is a problem that goes across the political spectrum and across political culture. 
and um, some work that was done by uh, Sir Peter Gluckman um, and others uh, from Koitu, a think tank at the University of Auckland, kind of pointing out that in New Zealand we just have this short-term culture. People don't expect or reward people for thinking proactively and, and planning ahead. So I'm afraid the bad news is it's, it's on us as the public and it's on us as voters too um, for failing to expect and reward the kind of behaviour that in hindsight uh, is pretty obvious we need a lot more of. Thank you, Alex. Yes, and so it, it is It is on us um, that we need to demand greater preparation and the ability to look forward from from our leadership. And that that, that has to be uh, some of the, some of the questions. There's an election coming up next next year, and we can't pretend we've gone back to business as usual. We have to demand an understanding of what could be coming uh, from our leaders for the future. One of the reasons why this was important for Maxim Institute was the level of divisiveness that we saw um, in the country uh, during that period of the pandemic and i'll just i'll just reset that in the sense that um in some sense COVID is not over it's clear but it's re we're going through a different phase now which is as it reaches a kind of endemic um situation so just fyi but that divisiveness uh, one of the um uh one of the the things quoted from alex's paper is there was a survey done in, in January, where 72% of New Zealanders believe that we are more divided now than we were one year ago, which is, um, which is an astonishing measure, uh, I think, for a country that often has prided itself in the past on, oh, well, you know, we're all Kiwis, we all get along. Turns out we don't get along when we don't agree. And, and, and I've as, as an observer and a New Zealander, I found, I found that alarming. I hadn't expected uh, that level of uh, antagonism, um, fear, but also anger, Alex. Yeah, for me, the, the thing that really um, symbolises this is that the High Court made a couple of, um, couple of significant decisions around vaccine mandates um, and in both cases they suppressed the, the names of the, the people who were um, who were challenging the mandates now courts don't do that lightly one of the, the basic principles of our of our system of justice is open justice um, that you should be able to know who's going to court what the result is uh, etc that's, that's part of you know living in a society that's governed by law so we can regulate ourselves according to the law so the courts for the courts to, to make name suppression decisions is, is a significant departure from that. For the courts to do it in the way that they did in those cases where they um, went on at considerable length to say, the reason we are doing this is, uh, my paraphrase, but effectively the environment is so toxic um, that there is such a risk of uh, bullying, intimidation, harassment. Um, they said we can't discount the, cons uh, the, the likelihood of uh, personal and professional consequences uh, for these applicants who are only doing what they have the right to do as citizens that has come to court and test the law um, that is being applied uh, that is being applied to them uh, and that is being applied to them as members of a minority uh, the court was very clear that it was making these orders to uphold the rights of people in minority positions and even even more in one case being very clear that the people who were applying these are people who had been on the front line of the COVID response um, they were people who had actually been at risk themselves um, from uh, you know, from infection, from transmission. Um, and in the words of one of the judges, they should not be thought of as any less committed 
to the community than any other New Zealander. So I thought, put all of that together, that to me is extraordinary and, and I think actually alarming um, that we could have got to a state where high court judges needed to make those kinds of decisions, I think tells us something um, deeply troubling. And to me, actually really kind of, as I say, uh, symbolizes and, and um, is evidence of, I think, you know, what, what you could actually see happening um, during the course of our, of our response to the pandemic, these divisions growing. Um, and a growing, uh, a growing divide and a, gro- a growing separation into what the Prime Minister uh, quite matter-of-factly called a two-tier society. Mm. Yeah. So the, the, the problem is, it seems to be that over these two years we just have forgotten how to or it's <coughs> exposed that we never really were able to disagree properly that there's nothing wrong with having different views and disagreements. And in fact, that's, that's the key thing about a democracy is that you self-regulate and you self-control through adversarial disagreement. The party system, the court system, it's all adversarial. Um, that's what separates, one of the best things that separates us from, from um, non-democracies is that we have that disagreement, which hopefully gets us to a, uh, a better state through the, the competition of ideas. But over the last couple of years, this ability to disagree was um, suppressed, effectively, or very uh, in certain uh, circumstances, it was um, suddenly any disagreement, you were no longer in the team of five million. And quite frankly, a, a disagreement is much better than having a monochromatic team of five million, quite frankly. Um, but that, was, that, that disagreement, uh, suddenly people were... Um, you know, uh, anti-vaxxers, um, they were, um, uh, well, the, the example from earlier this year, the, the, the infamous rivers of filth um, um, from one of our cabinet ministers. Um, even, uh, so that, from the top, that uh, filtered down through society where we had the leader of the opposition earlier in, in 2020 being attacked for, for as Alex mentioned about uh, in his um, paper, driving from Tauranga to Wellington to be on this uh, epidemic response committee that was a key part of holding the government to account, we had journalists and others questioning, well, really, should he be doing that in the time of pandemic? Um, you know, should he be spending uh, money on, on, on driving to Tauranga and should he be uh, putting us all at risk by doing that? Um, so that inability to dis- to disagree, I think, has really been something that we need to, to re-learn. Uh, mm. um, yeah. We will, and, and well, well, I think, I think, and we will. Uh, we, uh, I'm not trying to suppress your ability to speak <laughs> freely. I welcome it, um, and we will get to that with with, with the questions. Um, certainly, um, what I noted that I was doing when I was doing commentary, uh, say for example on on the vaccine issue, uh, I would preface my remarks by saying I'm double vaxxed, which which I was, um, but so what? It's actually so what. It doesn't, but but I and I, I I actually paused at one point and I thought, you know what what you're saying is that you're now allowed to be part of this conversation because I'm self-identifying as a as a sensible person. I stopped saying it because what is important is the arguments that I'm making. I think the civil tone in which I'm making them got a bit caught up there. Sorry, I didn't sound quite so civil before. Um, but the the it, and and I, I I tried to disagree agreeably, but without 
saying, well, this is, this is my passport, I've got my passport here, to be allowed to be heard in this conversation. And, um, yeah, look, Alex, I wonder, you know, how do we make space for minority views? What, is, there, is, there some, um, is there some mode? Um, because from what I saw, minority views were actively not just suppressed, but they were, they were disenfranchised. If you had a minority view, you weren't allowed to participate. I guess participation is, is at the heart of this. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I mean, I'd love to be able to give you a, a, a nice, easy answer um, to that question. But I think if I, if I did that, um, <laughs> it would be wrong. I mean, I, fundamentally, I think it comes down to seeing people who disagree with us, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. Um, and, you know, I've plenty of people that have got different views um, than I might have on, on some of these things. And, and I respect that. Now, one of the challenges, obviously, that we have to grapple with is that our individual views and our individual positions do actually affect the people around us. We're not independent, we're interdependent. So I don't think there's a world we can live in where we just say, well, you have your view, I'll have mine, and that doesn't matter. We do actually have an effect on one another. But what we need to do is sort of stand in that relation to one another and uh, actually be willing to try and hear and understand each other's hopes and aspirations and fears uh, without <clears throat> without sort of putting people beyond uh, without putting people beyond the pale, um, and I I do think this is one of the roles that um, our, the leaders of our nation actually have. They they set a standard, they model behaviour. Um, the Attorney General, keeping things constitutional, gave uh, gave a speech to a to a, a conference on on public law in December last year, where he just sort of he stood up and said, "Well, we, we're going to require the unwilling to do what the majority is going to do." And I think when you're, when you're sort of that matter of fact about just overriding um, people's position, um, again, I, I, think that's, I think that's quite telling. So one of the things I, I, I take from that, and to come back to your question, Tim, is that we actually need to pay attention to the character of the people um, who, who have positions of leadership and ask how do they actually, um, how do they respond to these situations? How do they respond um, to disagreement? Uh, because that, that character is going to spill over uh, and affect many of us. Mm. And, and the nature of a, a pandemic or an emergency like this, we've all got a temptation to really join the, the herd, to, to bunker down and to become part of the group um, and to ensure that you know, society uh, continues and, and, and that anyone outside that um, uh, herd is, uh, is, is cast out or ignored at the, at the least. And I always think back to, to a couple of cases, thinking about learning about constitutional law as a, a law student from World War II, where... The minority uh, view in cases in this case were the ones that we really celebrate now because we look back after the emergency and we think, oh, actually, that minority view was probably the more humane one. So I'm thinking of examples of um, the the locking up of, of um, German uh, uh, aliens, I would call it at the time, in the UK, and most of them were Jews uh, fleeing from uh, Nazi Germany. And there's a House of Lords case about whether they could do that without trial. And the House of Lords said, yeah, that's fine. And there's a minority judge who just rips into the, the majority and says, that's horrific. And we all celebrate the minority judge. But at the time, he got a whole lot of brickbats for how dare you speak up for the minority. Don't you know we're at war? Or again, an example from the same time, uh, same emergency in the US around um, the locking up of Japanese Americans in internment camps. Again, the people who were speaking up at the time for that, those minority views were discounted or, or, or you know, subject to uh, things Alex was talking about, about harassment. But now we look back and say, well, actually, they had something 
there that they were thinking something bigger than just being caught up in the emergency at the time. So mm. an idea that minority views are actually um, can actually have something to say is something we need to rediscover, I think. And that's that's also one reason why we have some of the constitutional processes that that we do as well, because they are they are designed to make sure that people have an opportunity to participate, to have a say, that unpopular views um, have have a chance to be aired. And the alternative to that is a process where people aren't able to participate. And if people aren't included in the process, um, don't don't be surprised if there's an adverse uh, an adverse reaction to that. And so I think another another answer another part of the answer to the to the question that you asked Tim is also that we actually just we have to make sure we follow those processes. Uh, and you know the the COVID vaccinations legislation bill is, is a prime example here. So this was another piece of law. This is what created the um, enabled the traffic light system and and the establishment of vaccine mandates. Now that was put through Parliament under urgency in 24 hours, with no no public consultation, no select committee. Unlike the COVID public health response act, it was not sent for um, post uh, post enactment review. And you had um, eminent um, public law academics coming out and saying this is a constitutional disgrace. And the Law Society said this is constitutionally unsound. This kind of thing undermines public trust and confidence um, in the law. And I think that this is this is sort of how the, the process and the culture kind of come together. Because if people don't trust that laws are being made that at least take account of differing views, you know, because I mean... I think we have to. We also have to be realistic about the fact that decision makers have a hard job to do. They do have to take a position. They're not always going to make a, uh, a decision that, that we agree with. But one of the reasons you can live with that is because you think, well, if it was done the right way, if we had our say, and if there's an opportunity for these things to be revisited later, you can you can accept the outcome of that. But if all of those conditions are taken away, then people cease to accept the outcome and they start to pull back and they start to say, well, maybe I can't trust, so I need to put in a bit of distance. And that's that's effectively how social fracturing um, you know, continues and, and gains pace. So all, all of those kind of boring-sounding processes, and again, this is a this is a bigger this is a bigger political culture issue. The um, legislation design and advisory committee came out and said there is an expectation, and this is this is a crop, this isn't specific to the pandemic. This is general. There is an expectation that all legislation can be expedited all the time. In other words, we can just make more law faster. Um, and and no harm will come of it, and that is an incredibly dangerous assumption. Mm. Yeah, actually, um, that that reminds me of um, uh, Jeremy Waldron's assessment, who's a New Zealand-born uh, US legal scholar, uh, who um, said New Zealand has the fastest laws in the West, and fast, and that was underpinned by the the realization that fast laws are very really good laws. Mm. Um, and they're very rarely laws where people feel they have a say. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's yeah. We we need to be able to continue to contribute to that process. We're looking forward now to where to from here. So, given the assessment that you've made, Alex, that we mm-hmm. suffered um, a kind of constitutional erosion, and I would say civic culture erosion as well. You described the culture before as toxic uh, at its worst at its worst instance. Um, where do we go from here? Well, I, I think we need to mark what's transpired in the last couple of years. Mm. So, so one of the reasons that I um, uh, was really um, grateful to, to Tim and to Max and for the opportunity to do this paper was sort of a sense that, that there is a lot of talk around uh, many of the aspects of our COVID response, but but not so much this, not the not the constitutional side of things. And so I think we need we need to actually mark what are the things that went well. 
um, that we can celebrate and that we should build on. But also, what are the things that we didn't get right, and um, uh, and and where we need to do better in future? And I think that's that's actually just about having an, an honest and mature conversation um, as a society. It's it's not really about assigning blame or being um, partisan. Um, and hopefully, where where we didn't get things right, we can kind of acknowledge that and um, and and move forward. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I suppose. My, my starting point for doing that is almost to say when, when I reflect on the kind of a couple of years of constitutional decision making that I was looking at, I, I mean, I, I do think, unfortunately, we've, we've got a lot of stuff that we need uh, that we need to do better on. Um, and that's everything from kind of the, the process side of things uh, through to the through to the culture um, that that surrounds all of this. And I guess one thing that I would want to want to highlight that my kind of research touched on that we that we haven't talked about yet is um, is the way New Zealand's constitution changes. And so it's it's often said that our constitution changes by pragmatic evolution. Um, you know, there's kind of a tweak here and a, and a patch there, and and things just kind of morph over time. And that's that's a really humble and flexible way of going about things. But it also means that if we're not kind of actually having these kinds of conversations mm. and saying what's going on here is this where we want to be heading uh that we actually run the risk of finding we've ended up somewhere that we didn't we didn't mean to end up and there are a couple of couple of areas in the research that i kind of highlighted which are both to do with um religious freedom kind of uh starting to slip in, in my view slip down the hierarchy of rights um as as seen by our decision makers and even in our courts um and in the kind of the, the area of co-governance which has actually become sort of a reasonably reasonably major topic um recently but again, through, in both of those areas through the pandemic, I think what we saw was sort of an amplification and an acceleration of change that was already underway. And regardless of what your, your take is on those issues, I think the point is we actually need to pull back and say, things are changing. We need to have open, mature conversations about them so that we know that we're, you know, we are heading where we want to be heading. And if we're not, we can correct course. And I think those, yeah, and those conversations, I think, take even more... Uh, particularly in relation to to, to the constitutional uh, response uh, to COVID, take on more importance because there's a real push, I think, to try and put this in the rearview mirror as much as possible to move mm. on. Um, particularly, you know, the, the, the uh, national conversation moves on with the next crisis, the sort of <clears throat> short termism that, that Alex was talking about. That we need to actually take the time to stop and reflect on that. Um, and the best constitutional sort of framework way of doing that would be something like a Royal Commission of Inquiry and um, or, or something along those lines. And, and, and that would be fantastic. But until that happens, I think it's on all of us to, um, to keep on discussing about that, this, to do research like Alex has done, um, to think about, well, if the, gov- if the government isn't going to call this Commission of Inquiry, what are we going to do to, to ensure that it's not forgotten and it's still um, discussed um, and debated? Just thinking about the, a royal commission as, as a possible response here, I think it's I think it's a both and because the risk with something like a royal commission is we go royal commission set up, that's that's taken care of and nobody thinks about it apart from the commission and the commission releases some findings and we and we um, you know they dominate the news cycle for sort of three days and then we move on to the next thing and um, and possibly we get some knee jerk laws out of it um, and I won't reference previous royal commissions that may have uh, led to that result but. You know, the, the, there is, there is a risk with some of those things, um, and in fact, one of the reasons, one of the things that I that I wanted to get to in my research was actually to keep coming back to these issues of constitutional culture. So not just procedures and machinery and so on, 
but actually what's what's the culture what are our norms what are our expectations what do we think is right and wrong when we come to these things so in a sense i think part of what we need to do is sort of re remoralize the conversation in the sense of actually bringing into it these questions about who do we want to be um, what values do we want to uh, to to um, to see actually living in our constitution and i'll just give you another example of why i think that's important um the Law Society said, uh, came out with a recommendation that if you, um, you know, pass an act uh, under urgency, then it should be automatically sent for um, post uh, post enactment review by select committee. And that sounds like it might be a really good procedural fix to some of the problems that we've seen. Except that you can imagine a way in which people might go, oh, well, we can pass more laws under urgency because now we've got another way to legitimise doing that. So if, if the people that are kind of operating the levers, the 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 constitutional levers, um, the levers of power, if they aren't committed to doing things the right way for the sake of people at large, then no no process and no procedure um, is, is going to fill that gap. The procedures matter, institutions matter, incentives matter, but they're not enough by themselves. It, it fundamentally comes down to these questions of, of character. Um, and, you know, I guess my uh, my, my thought on that, as I say, is, is kind of to remoralize these uh, conversations um, but also that we actually have to be looking for this to come probably from from civil society. And I, I would say, uh, to refer back to something um, that I mentioned earlier, asking our prospective leaders, the people who will be canvassing for our votes uh, uh, next year, what what is your plan for the future? Given that um, given given that something like this, this un, unprecedented kind of event is likely to extraordinarily happen again at some time. What's your agenda for it? And also, um, I think, um, Marcus, um, I want you to weigh in on this a bit, mm. but the, na- the nature of empathy being extended to people you actually don't agree with. Yes, yes, exactly. The way that you treat people that you disagree with. Uh, again, coming back to that strength of democracy is that disagreement doesn't cast you beyond the pale of, of society. Um, in fact, disagreement is a key part of our society to um, empathize or to, to recognize that, yes, as Alex said, we are neighbors, we are living in this country, um, and that we are all uh, citizens. We don't um, believe that we have a two tier society, um, that we are all New Zealand citizens, um, and that we all have um, the same uh, rights as each other. And that means, the, and, and that we retain those even if we uh, disagree. Um, and, and just to pick up on that point, Alex was talking about the civil society. This is also extremely important for uh, things like our uh, rights. I'm, uh, I was mentioning earlier in New Zealand, we're very different from somewhere like the States where we have an entrenched Bill of Rights um, and Constitution. We just don't have that. We've got a Bill of Rights Act, which sets out rights that the government and government bodies shouldn't infringe, but it can, they can be infringed. Well, no, they can be infringed if they're justified in a free and democratic society. That's written in the Act. But that means, and the, chief, the former Chief Justice Sean Elias uh, said in a speech prior to COVID, that these rights are only going to have any bite or any effect to the extent that New Zealanders as a whole think that they're important and think that they actually are worth something. I'm interested in this, given that what we've been through... Um, and given, uh, I think there are still extreme divisions in our country, uh, there's still anger and um, uncertainty about the future. Is there anything uh, in your review, Marcus, uh, pardon me, Alex, that, um, that gives you 
Marcus was just smiling at me in a winning way, so I just said, yeah, yeah. Um, "That was my mistake." Yeah. Um, is there anything that you can be hopeful about? Anything that that there are, that is a, a beacon for you yeah. in some sense? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do genuinely think we got some we got some good and important things right in the course of our the constitutional side of our pandemic response. So we've talked about the epidemic response committee um, in the past, and I think that is something that we should uh, that we should um, emulate. Uh, in the future, um, not not necessarily in exactly that form. I don't want to be that prescriptive. But the fact is, when Parliament was suspended, leaving aside the argument about whether Parliament should have been suspended, we did something that we that we didn't have to do to try and plug that gap because of norms that we recognised and that we valued and adhered to uh, imperfectly, um, as, as has been discussed. But still, I think that that was really significant. I think the fact that you have people like the Law Society. Um, and leading academics um, actually making quite a lot of noise about these things when they think the government's got it wrong. That's really significant um, as well. Um, it, it says that there is actually a degree of institutional commitment beyond just the institution of government to some of these safeguards, to some of these norms that are actually, um, you know, that are actually part of the glue that kind of holds us together as a democracy. So those are things that I think we, we can and should um, be encouraged by. Uh, and and I also just think there there is I think a, a sense of of real unease about the division um, that's been seen uh, in in society, and I I personally see that going across um, a whole lot of different uh, spheres. Um, uh, there's a very eminent um, sociologist guy called Professor Paul Spoonley who kind of comments about you know the fact that we've really radicalised people um, through the course of our of our COVID response, um, and again that's that's not just putting blame on the government that's a social response as well so you can look at you can look at that and say well that's that's really depressing that we've um, that we've treated people with such scorn and mistrust that the positive side of things is that people are recognizing that and they are saying effectively that's that's not okay that can't be the way forward and so I think we do have voices like that um, and including uh, in positions of responsibility and leadership and um, I mean, you've actually heard the same sort of thing from uh, the Chief Human Rights Commissioner uh, as well. So when I when I see voices like that um, speaking out, and you know, I, one of the things that I think is we we've also all got different roles to play in this kind of response. So for some people, it's to speak; for other people, it's to act. For some people, it's to do both. But when I see voices like that speaking out, um, that that actually gives me real hope that there is that there is still a commitment to uh, to these norms um, and to these principles. Um, and I, I think you know we, we actually just need to keep reminding ourselves of why they matter. Um, and there's a whole lot of ways in which we, in which we could do that. Maybe we'll get to the Q and A. But if we think about things like civics education in schools, uh, for example, um, and actually just learning some of these uh, these lessons of history. Um, final kind of word on hope is that I think um, actually one of the things crisis can do is it can be clarifying. Um, it reminds you who you are and what your priorities are. And if you don't like what you see in the mirror. Um, it's an opportunity to change. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, yeah, briefly. I mean, yeah, sure. Briefly, the, the the sign of hope is, and I'm not being glib here, is that there is an election next year. That we still mm -hmm. live in a democracy, and we do. We do live in a democracy. We still have um, ideals of uh, the rule of law, um, which is uh, yeah, sure, sometimes uh, seen in the breach, but it is still adhered to in the loud so in, um, in in the round. So. We do have a democracy. Our democracy didn't um, collapse or go away. Um, we've had a crisis, um, and we can take those lessons and all the 
concerns that we have and have been raised by various people um, going forward to things like um, uh, electoral reviews and things like that and having input into those to say, well, actually, in light of what we've seen over the last two years, how do we want our, for example, electoral system to, to, to be changed uh, in the future to perhaps have greater voices in Parliament or something like that? There are, there are a number of court cases where, where the courts have said, yes, this course of action was unlawful. Yes, what the government did here was uh, <clears throat> was illegal. One of the examples is um, the, the very first lockdown uh, for the first nine days, there was no legal authority for it. Mm. Um, and the High Court basically said, said this, um, uh, that when the Prime Minister and the Police Commission were telling us all to, to stay home or be arrested, um, they didn't actually have the legal authority to do that. Um, but they, but they said, but they, but they could have had the legal authority, and then they gave themselves the legal authority, so no harm, no foul, and they sort of moved on quite quickly. And so I think one of the one of the key, so so to your question, yeah, there, there have been instances where the government has actually acted unlawfully, and where that has been declared. My my issue with the High Court decision there, and most commentators around it, was just how quickly everybody moved on. I think we actually need to really mark that. To me, it is uh, astonishing that we had the Prime Minister addressing the nation from her office, the flag in the background, uh, sort of the full weight of that authority saying stay home um, without without first having ensured she had the legal authority to do so. Uh, I think if we don't mark that kind of thing, that is an incredibly dangerous precedent. But I think coming, sort of trying to tie this back to your question about hope, um, Tim, one of the things, again, that I feel hopeful about is I actually think the constitutional machinery works pretty well. Um, I, and, and sort of that point about let's, let's not sort of go our reaction... Let's not react in a crisis way to the crisis reaction. Let's actually say we've actually got a system that works pretty well. I, I think we're pretty fortunate to have it, to be honest, as a country. I think it was forged through centuries of struggle overseas. Um, doesn't always work perfectly, but there's a lot to be thankful for. Let's make it work the best way that we can. Um, and that includes marking departures from the norm like that. Like the MIQ cases where officials refused people exemptions to go and see dying relatives because they were applying the wrong criteria. Um, that's not okay. Um, but what we can do is we can mark that out. And in fact, the courts have marked that out and they have said that is not okay. Um, we just need to make sure that those things are stated and obvious and there's some follow-through for them. One of, the, one of the aspects of this that we haven't really touched on, and this question does, is, um, <coughs> is information mm. and the, the availability of information, uh, etc. Question. Are there mechanisms to review the decisions the government made on the way they shared information? Um, the over, oversimplification or selection of information that was shared by government uh, government bodies. Uh, and I think you actually touched touched a bit on this when people were referring to, uh, in your paper, people were referring, making MIQ decisions on the basis of, of websites, something that a bureaucrat saw on a website, oh, I'll make that decision. Yeah, one of the one of the issues there. Those are the, the MIQ exemption cases I was referring to a moment ago, where people were applying for compassionate exemptions to go and see dying relatives, and they were getting refused because um, the official who was looking at this was looking at the the summary the government had put on their website of what the law said, not the actual law, and the summary was wrong. So they were wrongly declining these applications, and I mean some of them are heartbreaking to read, including the case of you know somebody who who didn't actually manage to get the exemption in time, and his father died without him um, being able to be present because the wrong what to me seems pretty obvious that you look at the law, not the website. 
Um, so, so in terms of a mechanism for review, again, there is that court process. One of the issues we do have is around access to justice. If you want to go to court, um, you, you better have plenty of money uh, to spend on it. Uh, and, and so we need sort of practical mechanisms um, and feedback loops, which again is why I say we need, we need to mark these breaches publicly so that people learn from them and do better, uh, do better next time. But there's also a much bigger question about um, public information and control of sort of public narratives. And, you know, this is where <clears throat> through the, you know, the pandemic we've heard things like that, you know, the government was sort of briefing um, COVID influences without those influences necessarily knowing they were being briefed for this purpose, but to basically to, uh, to, to, to share the government's message on the pandemic and to try and shore up public confidence in the response. And, of course, when that kind of thing comes out, um, it, it does the exact opposite. It undermines um, public confidence. Um, again, I, I, I don't want to sort of only be a critic here because I can see when you are dealing with something like this, you do need to communicate in simple terms that people will understand that conveys the necessary information with the minimum of uh, ability for things to get lost in translation. But that has to be balanced with some sort of a sense that we can actually trust the people who are telling us these things and we can trust the information that we're getting from them. Um, and fundamentally knowing that they are applying that information correctly themselves goes a long way towards doing that. Yeah, I would I would add to that. Um, I have some experience in the media and, and, and the sense... Uh, within uh, journal journalists have this notion that they are um, independent thinkers. Um, I guess there's, there's an issue where a collection of independent thinkers, <clears throat> quote-unquote self-advertised independent thinkers, within media are then, are then attempting to present something that is actually has extreme gravity and they want to be good citizens. So there's kind of... So now, they may be they're not able to think, oh, actually, you know what? The, the benefit of expressing a different view will help me be a good citizen. There's kind of like a closing of ranks. And I think that occurs in any newsroom because they're collegial places. Uh, and so that's, that's something that, that I'm sure you will have observed perhaps in your own workplaces, your own fam families, your own, um, your own neighbourhoods. So I, I would just add that to um, mm. that. What, one, uh, one question that's come through a couple of times is about the role of the Governor-General uh, constitutionally mm. in this. Uh, what is the Governor-General's constitutional role in this pandemic? Um, why have we not heard uh, anything from her? Because, well, so, so the role of the Governor-General is actually technically exceptionally important in our Constitution because laws are passed, or primary laws are passed uh, with his or her um, agreement. So it's Parliament and the Governor-General on behalf of the Crown uh, signing laws into effect, and no law can come into effect until the Governor-General uh, has signed it. Um, often we haven't heard from the Governor-General um, on these laws. I haven't heard from, or haven't seen her um, signing things because a lot of these laws weren't laws passed by Parliament. They were orders in council or, or um, IMOs that didn't need Governor-General assent. So, so, so they went to, essentially those prescriptions allow you to circumvent the Governor General, or yeah, so their power given by is, is, that, is that too extreme, Alex? So, yeah, yeah, I, I would, yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly not a circumvention. It's, it's no, just no. it's a different kind of legislation. What's often called secondary or delegated legislation okay. doesn't need doesn't need to go through that process. 
there were real issues about things like vaccine mandates were made by regulation, not by legislation, so they don't go through all the normal parliamentary process and scrutiny and checks and balances and so on. But I don't think there's any desire to avoid the Governor-General, largely because the Governor-General is a figurehead in our system. So there's no, there's no real power there. Yeah, I, I retract <coughs> resile from that from, from that remark. When I meant circumvent, I, I didn't mean the intent to circumvent. I meant the, the, the outcome. Marcus, you were... In Australia, 1975, you had the Governor-General uh, bringing down governments, Gough Whitlam and Kurz Kerr and things like that. Um, uh, no, I, I, it, it would be very unlikely that that would happen again with these people. Yeah, I mean, Who are these governors? Technically, the, the Governor-General could refuse a sense of legislation. Mm -hmm. Practically, it won't happen because, because the role is, is basically a figurehead. Um, and you know, if legislation has been passed by Parliament by the people who have been elected democratically, you can't imagine that the Governor General is, is going mm. to say no. Um, Governor Generals do have some real powers, um, but just you, you're not going to see them refusing a sense of legislation. It's, it's it's not really their it's not really their role in our system. Okay, um, generational question, future future generation question. You touched on it, Alex. Do we need civics education in the curriculum? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that would be a really good thing. Um, I uh, <laughs> remember, yeah, if it, if it was done well, yeah, I think that's that's the crucial that's the crucial qualification. So, I mean, I, I you know, teaching um, undergraduate and undergraduate level um, stuff, uh, stuff is the technical term. Um, you know, I, it, it is kind of alarming what what people don't know, um, yes. and there's some really basic basic facts um, about how democracy works and about how systems work that I think would be really good for everybody to, to have an understanding of. Um, the risk with civics education is that it, it's very easy for it to become ideologically loaded, mm. um, and so a lot will come down to who teaches it um, and, and why they're teaching it and what they're trying to achieve. So I, th I think the answer is yes, we need, we need good civics education. It just has to be done with a lot of care. Okay. Marcus, anything you, <coughs> you agree with that? Ditto. There we go. Shortest answer of the evening. Um, does New Zealand have an authoritarian culture? Um, and uh, the, rest, the rest of the question, and does Labour's approach to COVID represent the authoritarian left? Question mark. I don't think it's authoritarian. I think it's more we have a culture of compliance and a culture of we are a small country that has generally been very homogenous um, in our views um, and so I think it comes back to that idea I was talking about earlier. We don't deal with disagreement uh, very well. Um, and then when you have the fear added on top of that, you suddenly uh, really don't deal with disagreement well. We just don't have that culture that a huge pluralistic society like the US has of different power structures at different levels, but also of um, fierce debate. Um, and, and so I just I don't I wouldn't describe it as authoritarian. I'd describe mm. it as compliant. You know, that whole, she'll be right, she'll be right, mate, um, get along, don't rock the boat. And you think about it, personally, as well, New Zealanders, we hate conflict. And so we just... I think no, we don't. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Phew, glad we swept that one under the rug. <laughs> Alex, anything to add to that? I mean, agreement. I don't, I don't think we do have an authoritarian culture. It's often been said that New Zealanders like strong political leaders. Um, you know, I think people like Muldoon and Helen Clark. Um, so there may there may be something there where I mean, it's often said you get the leaders you deserve. So if you, if you don't if you don't like if you don't like the culture, then um, have a think about why it exists. 
Okay, I got another question here about um, about governments uh, in, or government in terms. Do we need do we need an added tool with regards to government promulgations, laws, rules, and regulations? A body independent of the government bureaucracy. Second house. <laughs> Second what house. would that What would that do? Well, I mean, we used to have a second house of, of, of parliament, um, the legislative council, so it would be something like the, the House of Lords or the Senate um, in other countries. Um, it would, hopefully working well, provide a break and a considered view on legislation coming from the lower house in a manner that was divorced mostly from the political uh, to and fro. Um, so you'd have to design it well so that the government is not mirrored or the, the party political structure in the lower house is not mirrored in the Senate or the upper house because then it wouldn't work. Um, but yeah, done well, it would hopefully add some um, consideration on a non-partisan or less partisan basis. I think just quickly though, a key thing there is that a, a second house, um, if we had it, would, would in some way be accountable to the people. I think we've got to be really, often you hear people want to set up you know, another body or something like that to act as a check and the question is, well, who are they accountable to? Um, and you know, going back to some of the, the opening comments about public power, um, what power can do to us and the need for safeguards, one of the most important safeguards is accountability. So whatever we set up, there has to be some sort of a link where people are responsible for their actions and if they do the wrong thing, there is some recourse. Okay, the, you, we've been talking about urgency and the use of urgency. How do we slow down the wheels of Parliament now that the precedent of urgent lawmaking has been set? Yeah, that's the $64 million question. I mean, I, I think fundamentally, probably a $64 billion question these days, but I mean, I think it, um, I think it fundamentally goes back to what do we expect of the government? Um, and again, this, this, there's some stuff deep in our national psyche and in our, in our national history that we, we expect government to do quite a lot for us. Um, and some of that goes to, you know, effectively being a pioneer society um, where, I mean, sort of in my understandings in the late 19th century, you had sort of institutions of civil society kind of coming to the government and saying, we can't cope, we need you to set stuff up. Um, and so we've, we've always tended to have sort of a fairly big and, and active state. And when that's the case, you expect government to be able to, uh, to, to solve your problems. And the more problems it has to solve, the faster it has to do it. Um, and to me, again, it's... That's that's sort of the level, and those are the kind of questions I'd be looking at rather than just well, what are the technical fixes? Because you know, if you miss what's really driving the behaviour, then the technical fixes aren't going to help you. The only way they'll stop is if there's a political consequence. I think. Mm. I mean, as Alex has said, it's across the house. Um, I heard a comment from from uh, uh, an MP saying that you know they they love it; they can get more stuff done. Yeah. They're, they're united in the desire to yeah. continue exercising power, and 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 power, um, power is a narcotic, particularly to uh, to a politician. I want to, um, and this has uh, just been touched on. I want to talk about a bit about uh, religious freedom, and um, the, you mentioned in your paper uh, uh, that religious freedom, as enshrined in the Bill of Rights, uh, was not referred to. Um, by some um, some of the decisions that were being made, um, can you unpack that a bit and and talk about why that's important? Yeah. So so just to explain a little bit of background, um, 
when law's been considered by Parliament, there's, there's a process by which it's assessed for Bill of Rights Act compliance. The Bill of Rights Act contains a list of our fundamental rights and freedoms, um, everything from sort of the right to vote, um, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of movement and assembly, uh, and, and freedom to have a religious belief um, and to manifest, to, to practice and, and outwork um, that religious belief. And there were a couple of um, significant. Uh, so when there were a couple of significant pieces of legislation, um, the COVID Public Health Response Act and the COVID Vaccines Legislation Bill, that when they were being analysed in terms of the Bill of Rights, um, the religious freedom aspect was was just completely omitted. Um, and so to have it done once, um, <clears throat> I remember that line from the importance of being earnest. You know, one, once once looks like misfortune, twice looks like carelessness. So you sort of you know first of all you've got that. Um, there were then a couple of high court cases where uh, uh, well, it was the same case, but it went on, on appeal. And in both cases, to begin with, among other rights that were being brought up, the right to religious freedom was also being raised as something that was limited by the lockdowns. But by the time you got through to the decision and then the appeal and the decision by the Court of Appeal, um, the court was really just focused on other rights and religious freedom and just sort of dropped off, dropped off the radar. Um, there's also another case, not a COVID case, but decided during the pandemic, which... Um, if, if you followed the if you followed the approach, basically guts uh, guts the right, and so I, I sort of I look at all of these things and think um, there's sort of a direction of travel here, and, and again with the New Zealand Constitution, this can happen you know pragmatically in, in an unintended uh, kind of way, um, but we can end up somewhere we didn't we didn't mean to go, and what it looks like to me is that there's a risk that uh, religious freedom kind of slips down the hierarchy of of rights. Why that matters, um, first of all, because I mean, religious freedom is sort of a shorthand for rights of um, thought, conscience and belief. Um, so first of all, these are things that people hold most dearly. Um, these are the things that answer the questions, you know, who am I? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is this world? Um, if those questions cease to become seen as fundamental and relevant, then I think we're in big trouble on an existential uh, kind of level. But also because... Um, uh, effectively, people who, who practice religious beliefs are a minority in New Zealand today. And so this is tied up with the issue of how do we uh, recognise, respond to and respect the rights of minorities. In the same way that the High Court in its name suppression decisions was saying people who are asking, who didn't want to be vaccinated, they're a minority who need protecting. I'd say the same thing about these religious freedom cases. And, and it brings us back to this much bigger question of how do we tolerate, uh, how, how do we respond to people um, will we tolerate them if they don't think what the majority of people think? Uh, again, I think there should be a fairly obvious answer to that. Um, hasn't always been the answer. So I think I, just to, to, to tie it up into a bow is that we need to be able to have this conversation about it. We need to be able to debate it in public and to engage with it and ensure that nights like this um, are more regular and occur more often and 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 as vociferously as they have occurred tonight. Mm. Uh, it's I've really enjoyed the discussions and I've enjoyed um, the way that uh, Alex and Marcus have um, have engaged uh, with each other and also with you. And I think I think you know touching back to that um, that notion of authoritarian versus a kind of um, compliancy, uh, a compliant culture. I think we need to be ensure that we are not compliant um, and, and, and that we disagree, but that we disagree agreeably. 
Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. That's www.maxim.org.nz. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim Institute, goodbye for now.